Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chat Channel. My name is Tim Hayden, and I'll be your host. We have a great show for you today. Our guest is the beautiful and talented, award-winning Yvonne Perry. Yvonne has starred in many shows, films, and theater, like Winner of Frozen Dreams, To Kill a Mockingbird, Magnum P.I., Law and Order, Super Knocked Up, and more. But she's probably better known for her role as Rosanna Cabot in As the World Turns. Please welcome Yvonne to the show. Hi, Yvonne. How are you? Hi, Tim. I'm good. Good. How are things going? Very well on this winter day. Um, so is it very cold? Uh, you are north, aren't you? I'm in upstate New York. Yes, so I was thinking. So yeah, yep. you, you are probably getting it pretty good. It's right only now. about 30 today, so. Did y'all ever get rid of it, much of that snow that y'all were buried yeah, in? Yeah, we haven't had much snow this year. I, I actually wore my down coat for the first time this winter today, and it's January, so that's weird. Oh, so you were not near Buffalo then? <laughs> no, we didn't get anything. We had blue skies when Buffalo was getting nailed, right before Christmas, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. they got covered. Well, I'm so thrilled that you're here, and I will start like I usually do with everyone. Uh, how was it for you growing up in New York? Oh, I had a great childhood. I mean, I had a great childhood. I don't have, I, I joke with my friends, I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood because it was so untraumatic. <laughs> uh, hey, you know, that's good. <laughs> yeah, we remember trauma it registers in our brains, and I just, I had great parents. I was one of six kids. Um, you know, we didn't we didn't have a lot of extras, you know, we didn't go on, I didn't travel much until I got into my twenties, but, um, but, uh, couldn't, I can't complain at all. And my folks are still with me. I'm really fortunate. They're 80 and 90 now and, um, very close to my parents and all of my siblings were, we're really tight. So that, that's very awesome. Cause I know you come yeah. from a, uh, pretty mixed parents. I mean, I think your dad is Italian and your mother is, Yes, but that's pretty typical when it comes to, they're both first generation. My, my, my dad's mom was born in Italy, in Sicily. Um, my dad's father was born here, but his parents had only been here for like a year or so. He didn't get past fourth grade in school. And my mom, um, my mom's people, my mom's Irish and they came down from via Montreal from Canada, but she's Irish and English and Welsh, I guess, but it's pretty typical for the Italian Catholics to marry the Irish Catholics. So, so did you missed out on all the intenseness then since they're first generation here, you know, the thumping in the heads and the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, they were, they were definitely, you know, uh, you know, my dad didn't go to college or anything. So I think it's amazing that that they raised six kids. I think four of us have master's degrees. So, um, wow. you know, it just took two generations and uh, definitely blue collar on my dad's side, for sure. They were all floor sanders and um, uh, my grandfather, my uncle still does it. My I have an uncle who is 80, how old is uncle Paul? He's 84 and he still sands floors. Oh, He's wow. like this little Italian guy with a mustache. He looks like Mario from Mario Brothers. <laughs> He's amazing. Wow, amazing. it sounds like it. My dad is fixing to turn 83. And yeah, it's it's just hard for him to get around. Oh, but. well, yeah, I don't know. There's longevity on my dad's side. My grandfather lived to be 96, so he didn't take a pill. My dad actually got diagnosed with cancer at the beginning of COVID. Oh, and, no. uh, yeah. So this March will be three years ago. And he thought he was done. I remember he came out of the hospital after his surgery and he was like, I'll be, I'll, I'll be dead by Labor Day. He's very melodramatic. I think I get my, my drama. That's from the Italian <laughs> really He's like crying. We're all crying. He's still, he's doing great. He's, they can't figure it out. The doctors do not understand why he's not dead. It's like your sister <laughs> doesn't want to spread. It's just sitting there. He's like, hey. That, that's a good thing. We yeah. might need to study that, figure out why. So when did you know acting was the path for you? Well, um, I I don't know when I actually knew. I knew it was something that I loved to do. I Like I said, you know, my dad was a hairdresser and my mom uh, managed a pediatrician's office. She was like a bookkeeper. So, and I came from a small town and I, there were no, I didn't have any, you know, 
I didn't have any people that I, that I went, oh, they did it so I can do it. I, I didn't know anyone who could make a career out of this. I didn't even know how to, I wasn't exposed to an awful lot in my childhood. So, um, you know, when I said I wanted to study theater in college, my parents were like, well, you're pretty smart at whatever you try. So go ahead. We, we can't help you, but see ya, you know, they were, they were supportive, but, um, uh, it's funny. It's funny. Cause I tease my brothers and sisters who are all very successful, but I think that I'm the only one who never moved back home when I left at 17. <laughs> I was like, how'd the actress be the one who never had to like count on mom and dad. <laughs> So, I know it's usually the struggling actor, I believe, yeah. is the phrase. <laughs> I mean, I did. Yeah. I struggled. I waited on tables for almost three years in New York before I got on the soap. And I was booking some stuff here and there, but for sure, yeah. Walt Turns pulled me out of that. But you you mentioned that you were you you and it's great that you learned it or you had to do it yourself. You had to learn what you need to do, who you needed to contact. Right. But that's not to dismiss that you went to college. I did. <laughs> I, I have, yeah, I have a BFA in acting. It was a conservatory program. I studied for four years. Um, I graduated when I was 21. And then I uh, waited tables for two years. And then I actually was thinking of grad school. I like school. I always like school. So I went to um, ACT, which at the time, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. I left New York went to San Francisco for a summer. I studied there for three months. And then they asked me into their um, master's program. I was thinking of getting my MFA, uh, but that was pretty competitive program. And um, I was feeling so good that I said, you know, can I defer for a year? I want to go back to New York for a year and I'll come back next fall. And um, I went back to New York. I booked Candid Camera pretty quickly after that. Um, so I did Candid Camera for about nine months. And then and then I was getting close on a couple soap things and then I booked Rosanna. So I never went back to that. I never got my MFA. I did end up getting a graduate degree, but it was in theater history, not in performance. And that was after right. I left the soap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Candid Camera. I was going to ask you about that. What was that like? I mean, you were doing improv. I mean, improv is pretty tough to do. Yeah, you know, I never studied it in college, um, but when I did that summer, I just talked about at ACT, um, we had an amazing improv teacher. I can't, I wish I could remember his name, but what, what I remember most about that summer at ACT, and this is so ironic because I was living in New York, but I went to San Francisco and all of my teachers out there were actually performing. So my acting teacher, his name was Larry Hecht. He was doing a show in San Francisco at night and teaching us during the day. Um, my, my voice teacher, who he was in the process of divorcing at the time, named Deborah Hecht, uh, ended up at Juilliard teaching voice. Uh, she was amazing. And my improv teacher was in an improv troupe and I could go watch him perform in the evenings. And he was oddly and incredibly supportive of me. And I had such a good time that I think the Canon camera, I actually submitted myself to it. I was working with an agent at the time and I was like, you need to submit me for this. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I don't know if maybe you've heard this story before, but my callback for Canon camera was, the, the callback was, a uh, they called four people in at a time and they gave us an improvisational scenario. They said, okay, one of you is a cab driver. The other three of you are going to get in a cab at the same time. They had four chairs set up. And they said, and the improv is, you have to convince the cab driver that you're the most important fare and that he needs to take you to where you want to go. <laughs> and they were like, go. And um, so our cab driver was this amazing um, improv, uh, amazing stand-up comedian named Adam Ferrara. If you look him up, he, he's done a uh, lot of work since then. So Adam Ferrara was the guy, the cab driver. Um, then there was this model, this girl who was just gorgeous, this model girl. And then there was the second guy in the group was young comedian named Kevin James. Oh, no. So my callback was with Adam Ferrara and head of Kevin James and then a model who like could barely speak. So it was great because the model got in the car and she was like, I'm late for a modeling gig. And I was like, bitch, you're not going to win this. <laughs> right. And I can't remember what Kevin did, except that he was really funny. And I was like, this guy's funny. And I pretended to be nine months pregnant 
in labor and about to give birth to a baby. So I was like giving fake birth to a baby on Kevin James's lap during my callback for Canada. I walked out of there. I was like, there's no way I'm not going to book this because those two guys are out of this world. And that girl made me look really good. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best kind. With both of them on candid camera. Yeah, it's fun. Well, you believe, I I believe that the improv would probably help you out in your career, especially on soaps, because I know some actors like to do their own improv sometimes. And I have to say that wasn't really my experience on World Turns. I uh, daytime work is so technical. Um, it, it's so fast, and you are um, the cameras. It's it's three cameras that are, and it's edited on the fly in the control room. You probably know all this. Um, oh no! I please explain it. it. Oh, well. Um, you shoot in a studio and there are three video cameras and they're all shooting at the same time. And the director sits in a control room and it's sort of like, it's sort of like a football game. They call, they call the shots from the control room. And so they're editing it as you go. The editors are really just doing cleanup um, sound and um, they tighten things, but most of the show is edited as it's shot by the director in the control booth. And sometimes there'll be a fourth camera that's on a big jib or a crane, like for big weddings and things like that. They'll bring in a a camera on a crane, but usually it's just three cameras. And those cameras, you have dry blocking, which means I'm sorry, you have camera blocking in the studio. And that's when the cameramen are given their or women are given their um, trajectory and their shots in the scene. They have scripts, too. And if, as an actor, if you don't say the words that are on the page, then the cameras don't know where they're supposed to go and they're supposed right. to go. And the director can get lost in the booth because everything is contingent on you moving where you're supposed to move. It's, it was really, it's kind of one of the reasons I loved working in daytime because it was so technical. There were so many things you had to pay attention to and you had to be really fast about it. And, um, Consequently, the people that tended to stick around um, were really smart. And I don't know, you tell me, Tim, you've been interviewing a lot of (laughs) ex-daytime people. They're generally pretty smart people. Well, the people that were the improvidists that I've heard of uh, really made the directors and camera people angry because then they would have to go back and redo it. And I I know daytime, they hate a second take. Yeah, man, I, I often, you know, my last couple of years there, when I was working a lot with Sean Christian, they would put us, we would call it last up in the PM. And um, so that, that's sort of like in-house lingo, but it meant it meant the, the union required that the show be in the can by 8.30 at night. And if you went past 8.30 at night, you were into overtime for everybody. And um, generally you would get dry blocking rehearsal and then you'd get camera, camera blocking and then a dress rehearsal and then you'd shoot it. We would... Sean and I would be last in the PM right before the union break. And we often would not get any camera blocking or dress rehearsal. We would go what's called straight to tape. They'd be like, we got 15 minutes to do four scenes in the Snyder kitchen, go. And half of that stuff that went on the air, it was the first time it ever came out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So I got really good at read. I'm really good at cold readings now. <laughs> that's good. That's yeah. great. Yeah, we uh, were fast. Was Gaddy like your first soap job? I know it was only like one episode, but no, my first soap job was on All My Children. I played. Oh, okay. uh, I didn't have a name. I was called Frightened Young Coed, <laughs> and I had a scene in a library. Some somebody was kidnapped, and some ransom was being dropped off in in the Pine Valley College Library, and I. I was, um, and it, Ta- Michael Knight was in the scene with me. He played Tad. Okay. And I, there was another actor too. And I remember I was frightened. Like someone <laughs> thought I was the kidnapper or something. And I was like, no, I'm just looking for my book on history or something. But I remember that I had six lines, which is paid more than under fives. An under five contract has less than five lines. So that day, all I wanted to do was get all six lines out. Cause I was so afraid <laughs> if they talked over my sixth line, I wouldn't get paid as much. But that's because Joan Dincheco, who is the casting director, would hire me for about a year and a half. I was her I was her reader. So she would hire me to audition other people on the show oh, okay. in the casting office. And after doing that for over a year, she 
she gave me the the day player role as a sort of thank you. Yeah, so. Well, do you remember your audition for Ice Little Turns? Yes, very much. I remember. <laughs> oh, you like to ask this question, right? Yes. It's, it's funny because. Um, this and the very next one will be your first day. So yeah, those are two questions that I really like to ask. <laughs> My audition for As the World Turns, I remember it was, first of all, it was with Judson Mills. He played Hutch at the time. Hutch. And um, Judson and I are still in touch. I actually just saw him two years ago. He did the national tour of The Bodyguard. He played the Kevin Costner role and he was excellent. I saw it twice when he came through this area. Um, so Judson, oddly enough, had been a bartender at the restaurant that I worked in. And so oh, okay. I knew Judson from two years earlier. Uh, we had worked together. So that was kind of nice that I got to go there and be like, Judson, what's up? You know, um, <laughs> yes. um, I remember that there were eight of us. And I remember that I had just shot a commercial for the National Dairy Board for butter. And um, I met a guy shooting that commercial, played my husband, and he rehearsed with me for my screen test the whole day before my screen test on World Turns. So I knew that scene backwards, forwards, upside down. Um, I felt very, very prepared. And I walked into the screen test and there were seven other girls and we were all together in one room in like this holding room. And God, they I was so intimidated. They were so beautiful. And some of them had, some of them were recognizable. Um, several of them have gone on to have pretty good careers. Um, and I remember calling my manager and being like, you won't believe it. And she was like, just relax and just do, you know what you have to do. Um, so I remember getting the blocking and I'll come back to this because, um, I tell the story today with some of my, in some of my teaching, because I do intimacy work and intimacy choreography and choreography. Got a bunch and, of questions later for that. Okay. Well, <laughs> I tell this story a lot to um, younger, younger students when I'm working with them, you know, um, college age kids, because I'd never been on camera. I've never done an on-camera kiss before. So most screen tests, if you're young and you're going to play a love interest to someone, they have a kiss in the screen test. So I had this big, long scene and it was with Judson and there was a kiss at the end. Um, Rosanna and Hutch kissed at the end. And, um, I remember kissing him in dry blocking rehearsal and I kissed him open mouth <laughs> and I was using my tongue and Judson was not. And I was like, what a weird kisser this guy is. Right. And we finished the scene and Judson, he, he was so wonderful. He pulled me aside and he said, Yvonne, I don't want to embarrass you, but I want to let you know that when you're kissing on camera, we don't use tongue, especially if we don't know the person very well. And I was mortified. I mean, just, just mortified. I was so nervous about so many things that I might be doing wrong. It was my first screen test ever. And um, I was also so incredibly grateful that he was so kind and he was so just educational about it. He was just like, you're not the first one, just, just so you know how it goes. And I thought, oh God, you know, what an uncomfortable position to put that guy in, you know, poor Judson is in this position where he has to explain, you know, first of all, he's got to kiss 10, eight girls in one day that he doesn't know and teach half of them that you don't use tongue. That's your, so um, I'm really, really um, honest about that. When I work with young actors today, I just tell them I'm really blunt and really honest about what the expectations are. And I say, you can open your mouth, but you better not stick your tongue down somebody's throat because that's disgusting. Unless you're having an intimate relationship with someone, we don't right. do that. And the camera can't really tell. So why, you know, why, you know, and um, so many actors are just so relieved to be like, Oh, God, okay. How else would I have learned that? And it's like, well, hopefully you don't have to learn it the way I did, which was at a screen test where there, where I was already so nervous about so many other things. But, but again, Judson made me so comfortable. I give him a lot of credit. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I didn't have it on my list of questions, but I have often wondered that when I'm watching the TV show or soap opera, you know, because some get the bottom lip, 
some do the open mouth without the tongue but but i'm just like i wonder do they practice that at, you know do they say hey this is how i'm going to do it that and i'm glad you answered that that it well does. i believe that you know um also in daytime you when you're working with someone you're often working with them every day in an ongoing story and so it, you can it's it gets easier to communicate with that person um, and so eventually, if you're doing a lot of love scenes with someone, you know, like I had love scenes with Greg Watkins and with, we would talk about that. We'd be like, do we want to do anything fun today? Do we want to do this? We, we would have the sort of what I call now right. consent conversation before we would do the scenes so that we weren't throwing any surprises at each other when the cameras were rolling. And um, I tell you, daytime was an environment for me anyway, in my experience, was probably the best place for me to be to learn about love scenes because there were so many protocols already in place. Um, the stage managers really had your back. The wardrobe was always there with a robe. They would always clear the set. I remember once I had to take a shower with Sean Christian and it was like a little embarrassing. And we had like flesh colored things, but we were mostly, you know, we weren't wearing much. And they cleared the hall set. There was just a skeleton crew in there. Everyone was super, super respectful. Um, these were people we worked with all the time. So it wasn't like there was some stranger checking things out. If you had a problem with anybody, you just needed to talk to the stage manager and they would they would take, and we had uh, all female stage managers on world turns, which I found super helpful because there were no intimacy you know, people there. There wasn't a thing right. at the time, but uh, I found the hall thing to be fairly untraumatic, <laughs> fairly pretty easy to figure out. Everybody sort of communicated and and it was great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, you were the first Rosanna Cabot. Hmm. Um, what was, did you get the chance to help create that character since you were the first? I mean, were you able to say, well, maybe she would do it this way or? I would try. I, I was so young. I know you were very young on the show. Yeah. And I, I didn't, I didn't know. If I could go back and talk to my younger self, I would have I would have taken a little more initiative maybe to try right. to see. I remember that Rosanna was supposed to have wanted to be an artist and that's why she ran away. I was a runaway. And um, I remember that once I got to the Snyder farm, they just sort of dropped the whole artist thing. And I would be like, can I, can I have a sketchbook with me in the scene or can I be drawing at the start of the scene? And um, it was really hard because the writers didn't really write that in for me very often. And that frustrated me a little bit. I remember at the time, um, oh, you they didn't have a lot kind of, of, I was gonna say, they kind of made you concentrate more on the farm itself. You know, you, you, I love to be the lake. I love to be around the lake. I want to go walk the farm, that kind of thing. Well, they made her a hard worker, which was good. I appreciated the fact that they didn't make her this spoiled brat, rich kid. She actually right. wanted to feel what it was like to work hard for your money because she grew up in such a um pampered lifestyle that's was was her backstory and um, then you inherited a bunch of money later yeah. on and you still didn't let that didn't go to the character's head like you're talking I, I, about i tried not to let it go to her head yeah i I, I, it was really important to me that you show that i show because rosanna was only 18 when you met her that she um was trying to figure out what kind of person she wanted to be separate from, from this wealthy family. And what's funny is um, they hired a guy to come on to play my dad, the dad that I was running away from that I hated because my mom died. And my yeah. mom was this, was Carly's mom. Later Carly on I, right. She we shared a mom that we never met. We, she was dead by the time I showed up, but the dad was played by an actor named Paul Hecht a really, really good theater actor and a really good voiceover artist. And Paul is still alive and he and I are buds today. We are such good friends. So cool. That yeah. is so cool. Yeah, I just had lunch with him in New York a couple of months ago. Now, Rosanna, she was quite a character. Um, she was good mostly, but she did have her moments. But I felt like Carly brought that, always brought that out of her. It was provoked to me. <laughs> 
Yeah. Again, if I could go back in time and talk to my younger self, you know, or coach my younger self as an actor, because I remember resisting a lot when, when they brought the character of Carly on, they, I felt like they made Rosanna so dumb, you know, I was like, how could she not, how could she be, how could she love this person? Who's so, I mean, so obvious to me, but you know, and I fought it instead of just buying in, I would go back and tell myself, just buy in to her, just loving this girl and wanting her to be great. And I, I, I resisted it. And it, and it, I think it made my job a little harder for me at the time. Um, because, because Mora, I mean, Mora didn't resist anything. Mora she just went not. 110%. She did not try to justify any of that character's bad behavior. It, 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 she didn't, I'm sorry. She always justified it. because She's a lovely actress. She didn't judge it. Right. You know, right. as an actress, she didn't judge Carly's actions. She just played the intention and the truth of it. And I was more judgy. And I think that I wouldn't be if I did it again today, but whatever. You know. Well, Rosanna would think things through, whereas Carly was more of a, it's easier to ask for forgiveness later. Yes, for sure. <laughs> for sure. But yeah. you two had the best chemistry. I mean, those two characters. <laughs> yeah, we we were, um, again, if I'd even gone further with the, with the sort of like pure of heart and really just wanting to love and find what's good in her it would have been even more interesting because the two of them were just so not each other yeah <laughs> well while you were there i just want everyone if, unless someone lived under a rock and i'm aware of this you won the soap opera digest award for outstanding female no newcomer what was the that first one that? that world turns first ever one. one yes yeah. it was the it was and that what was that like i mean at a young age and winning it's funny, you know, I, so you briefly mentioned earlier that after I did those six lines on all my children, I did do, I auditioned for a role on Guiding Light for Melina Kanakaridis and, uh, uh, what's that character's name? Elena. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I was not right for it. I dyed my hair dark. I tried really hard, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't get it. She was so perfect for it, but, um, I guess I did well at that audition and that's how the casting directors remembered me for the Rosanna thing. And then they gave me this recurring day player. I actually did a couple episodes and I worked with Rick Hurst who played Alan Michael. Yes. And um, again, Rick and I still really good friends. I had the best conversation with him right before Christmas. Uh, Cause he just moved back up. He moved back to New Jersey from Georgia recently. So he and I keep in touch and we were great buds when I went out to LA um, well, you need to tell him it's time to do my show. He told <laughs> me he would do it, but he has yet to schedule it. <laughs> I'll tell him. Um, I'll tell him. I love his wife. She's such a, an amazing woman. Um, but so, so I had done. Why did I bring up Guiding Light? What did you ask me? Um, just talking about the soap award, winning it. What it was like? Oh, oh, oh! Because because the people announcing. So if you can find that, I don't know where it was before YouTube or whatever, but um, the people announcing that category, it was Mark Derwin who played Mallet on Guiding Light Guiding and Light. Beth Ellers who played Harley, Harley. and Frank DeCopolis who played. Um, who would have been your husband if you'd gotten that role. <laughs> yes. Right. Frank so DeCopolis. Frank, right. So they were the three of them were, were announcing the best female <sighs> newcomer. And because I had done Guiding Light, I actually knew those guys. And we had been hanging out together the night before the soap opera awards. We were drinking together, having a great time in Beverly Hills. And um, they knew my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time. And we've been hanging out. And Mark Derwin, who's adorable, he was like, if you win, you're going to know. If I open that envelope and it's you, I'm going to know. I was like, it's not going to be me. It will never in a years be me. Um and so when I was sitting in the audience and they opened the envelope, Mark Derwin goes, yes. <laughs> and they didn't even say my name yet. That's when I knew I won. The so if, if I watched that, the camera cussed me and I knew I was like, are you out of your mind? I didn't even have a dress on. I didn't. I had so I had no money. I'd only been on the soap for like nine months. I, I barely paid back my student loans. 
I couldn't afford a gown. I bought this weird leopard palazzo pants and I stuck the belt in my hair like a headscarf. I mean, I didn't, nobody dressed me. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I was like, what? I had to go up on that stage and give a speech in this outfit. <laughs> kind so, of a get physical outfit's what it sounds like. That's so funny. <laughs> Olivia costume. Yeah. Um, Lost my place there. Was that your last soap job? Well, I, I went back briefly to all my children, only a couple episodes when it went online. I was, oh, we don't have to talk about this, but I was, I had cancer about 14 years ago and I was recovering. Got from that. Cancer. And oh, yes, um, I've got it in my list. Uh, <laughs> we can go ahead and talk about it if you want. We can jump to well, that. Somehow the casting director at all my children at the time, she knew about what I was going. I don't know why, um, but she had me in and she gave me the role. I played a, um, okay. So who was the doctor on all my children? It was a guy. He was Jake like a Martin. No, young, uh, young guy, um, Nick. Uh, Greek. He had a Greek name. The actor. Oh. I don't know what the character's name was. I know he was forever. Anyway, he was on vacation and um, a character was having a miscarriage and they needed a doctor. <laughs> so, so they hired me. Um, she was an amazing actress. Her baby, she was having, she was miscarrying a baby. It was in 2009. Anyway, I was, I did, I did a couple episodes of all my children back then. So that, but that's it. Yeah. And now they're all off the air. So. Yes, pretty much they are. And uh, I was going to bring that up here, but uh, let me jump back up here. Let's talk about your primetime shows like Magnum P.I., Silk Stockings, Law and Order, and more. Did you like the change of pace between daytime and nighttime, primetime? Well, I will tell you a funny story. I did not do an episode of Magnum P.I. I know I'm old. I'm not quite that old. Um, that episode was shot by a Hawaiian actress with the same name as me. Well, you so could have been I a little girl, but of course, credited. once again, IMDb screwed me again. So. They did screw you. It wasn't <laughs> me. I, she, has, she has since passed away, but I used to get her checks sometimes, and I forwarded oh, no. them to her. Um, she was a non-union actress who was, actually lived in Hawaii, and she played a maid in a two-part episode, and it gets credited to me because, because her name was in the credits, and her name was Yvonne Perry. Um, oh, but, I see. Yeah, I, I thought I had that removed. It was on my Wikipedia page, and I know it's gone off of there. It's anyway. still on IMDb. I did a, um, I did, <laughs> just so you I know, did, I did do a great thing on silk stockings. And that was cause I was, I was actually got really close to getting hired as the detective on silk stockings and didn't book it. So the casting director gave me a really good guest star on that show, which I shot right after I left the soap. Um, did you like the pace of it being, being slower and all than daytime? No, a lot of people don't. I, I like working faster. I don't like single camera as much. When you do triple camera editing as you go, it feels a little more like theater, which is sort of my, which is my training. And yes. it feels, it feels more, um, there's a rhythm to it. Uh, when you're shooting single camera, which, you know, the law and orders are all done with a single camera. I've done a couple of those and the, the, certainly the silk stockings episode, you know, you, you do the wide shot, then the camera moves and you get your close up and the camera moves and you do the scene again and it's on the other person. And it, it feels, it takes so long. <laughs> it's so, so boring. So you're kind of having to do it at least twice on primetime. At least then. you do it, you do it like eight to 10 times. Wow. Um, I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. And they edit <sighs> it together and it's, I don't find it nearly as fun, frankly. It I mean, kind of sounds like primetime's a little behind the times. <laughs> Compared well, to daytime, because they're able to do the three camera. Yes, but the advantage of having one camera and moving is that you can you can light better. So True. they're moving the lights too, and they're um, they can get much more interesting angles, and they can. That's why the lighting looks so much better in prime time than it does in daytime. Daytime's kind of flat because the mm -hmm. lights just sort of hang there and the cameras have to shoot around the existing right. lighting. 
So because daytime does look more fake lighting than versus prime time. It's a little and, darker. And that's why. That's why. Yeah. There's that a whole sense. cinematography is a whole art in itself. And so um, to get the depth of field and all the kinds of things they can do with the fun, fancy lenses, they have to shoot at one camera. Gotcha. See, that's why I love doing this show and talking to fabulous celebrities like you. I learned so much. I mean, <laughs> I may eventually learn how to do a show. <laughs> <laughs> You got any technical questions I can answer them because I love I used to love my crew I would always I would hang out with the crew I would sit and edit a lot when I was on the soap um hang out in the control room watch how they called the show uh I was sort of fascinated with uh I just couldn't believe they let me behind the curtain frankly I just remember that about the the all the years I was on the soap I would go to work and I'd be like how did this get to be my job <laughs> <laughs> yeah. see I could get anything done because I'd be like oh my god there's so it's oh no there's so yeah, you get over that pretty easily because you're all doing the same job. So it's like the great equalizer, you know? Right. Well, we've mentioned a couple of times, or you've mentioned a couple of times about love and intimacy scenes. Uh, you did have extensive trainings that's filled of intimacy. Um, what is that like to be able to teach that? Because I know you said how uncomfortable it kind of was for you not knowing. Mm. Um, I think, well, I, I got a lot of experience in my youth doing love scenes. And then I think as I, uh, then when I left that arena, um, I got a master's and then I started a family and then I started teaching, coaching and directing. And what I found was that I was pulled to material that had a contemporary ear for dialogue. And I like, although I love sort of mid-century stuff, I like Oscar Wilde, I like Noel Coward, I like that sort of heightened language as right. well. But if if there's ever a through line in any great drama or comedy from the Greeks onward, it's it's that it's about it's about heightened relationships. And so when you're thinking, you know, about say a boyfriend and a girlfriend and it's in a play, they're not going to show a scene of you on a normal day. That's mm -hmm. not very dramatic. So it's, it's something heightened is happening in their lives that make that day or that moment extraordinary. And that's what makes it good theater. And so often that involves some sort of vulnerability that comes from intimacy. Um, it doesn't always have to be sex. It can be, it can be an assault, or it can be a first touch, or it can be, um, it can be a, a want, a sort of you know it, that lives in the breath. But it's always sort of heightened in a way. And so, um, I was drawn toward that kind of material, and I found in my teaching and in my directing, I was really good at teaching, especially young actors, how to do that in a safe way where they felt like they could explore these moments in a safe environment. And um, I would get actors that would come up to me and say, you know, wow, I've, I, I've had, I had to kiss people twice in high school and I've had to do this before, but I never felt comfortable doing it until I worked with a director like you. And I was, so when, when I heard about this training in this new field of intimacy choreography, I thought, hmm, I think I've been doing that all along, but I would love to have a common language Right. So that other people who do the work that I do, I can speak to them about it because I'm not just making up my own methodology. I'm actually learning, you know, learning. I'm, it's, it's codified. So um, so that's when I went away in 2018 to the University of Illinois. I studied with with some amazing people like Alicia Rodas and um, Claire Warden and uh, Tonya Sina, who kind of founded the whole movement. Those were my teachers out there. Um, right. And what I find now is like, I, because I've been teaching in college for 25 or more years, um, I end up, I get hired by a lot of colleges to either come in and bring in intimacy and consent protocols or to actually do the intimacy in a show. Um, so I work at Syracuse University a lot. I'll be back there later this month. Um, 
you know, I brought the protocols to Skidmore College with Claire Warden. Um, I work, I'm an artistic associate at Capital Repertory Theater, which is our professional Lord D Theater here in Albany, where I live. And um, I just worked there yesterday doing the intimacy on a show that they're doing right now, a new play. Um, and I find that the actors just love it. They love that someone like me can come in the room and just open a dialogue. Right. Just go, oh, this is an uncomfortable thing that a lot of directors don't like talking about. But guess what? I'm here. And, you know, what are your boundaries? And, uh, you know, I'll I just use very biological terms and. Um, I don't skirt the issue and I'm an easy person to call if you have a question that you don't feel comfortable maybe going with stage management or direct or your director with, you can come to me and I can mediate that problem for you. Right. I'll give you some tools to help it go smoother. Well, you've done it. Not only have you done it, you've studied it. And so you could help coach that person on maybe you should try this or that. I mean... Yeah, I've done a lot of directing at this point as well. Um, and uh, although I wouldn't call myself a full-time director, I, I, I do it. Um, and I, I come, it's, it's interesting. A lot of the intimacy professionals that I work with come from a background of um, stage combat. So they are often, um, because it's so physical and it involves the physical body and movement and they're so used to choreographing fights and things like that, that it's another tool that they have in their tool belt and they're very, very good at it. Um, but I'm one of those rare people, I'm not really a stage combat person. So I come at it from an actor and director point of view, not, not a stage combat thing. So I think that my, the, the sensibility that I bring into the room is a little different and um, maybe that's why actors respond to it a little more easily. I don't know. They're, I know wonderful people who come from a different background and they're so good at it too. It's, it's just good to have a person in the room. I really believe in it. I think it makes the work better. Um, I had actually not heard of that position until I started researching you to do the show. Ah. And I did a lot of research in it when I started reading your stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't see how they cannot have somebody like you in that position on set. I mean, if you're doing a medical show, you actually have a medical professional to at least give you advice and to bear yourself like that on camera has got to be one of the most, I mean, free, not freeing, but scared. I mean, you're mortified. There's a, there's a lot of uh, ways that it can be traumatic if you're not, right. if you're not careful. Now I'm, I'm a little, I got a really thick shell, so I'm not, um, I'm not super easily traumatized. <laughs> I grew up with a lot of brothers. Let me put right. it that way. So, and, and also I came, we started this whole interview talking about my childhood. I came from a childhood that was pretty idyllic in a lot of ways. So I don't have a lot of baggage when it comes to that stuff. So I think that is also what makes it easier. Um, but I don't, when well, no you're from help. my generation, we were raised different. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were given a key to the door and told, you know, not to let people in. And, uh, you the know, the flip side is that that the flip side to this is, is I was working with some actors at a different college and it was like a simple kiss. And the reality is that we're looking for a world where every director knows how to have the language to help actors with a simple kiss or a touch. You don't need, you don't need to bring in an intimacy professional for that. That should be like the basics, right? Um, as long as the directors have the right language and are taught how to, how to approach these scenes. Um, Someone like me, you know, that if there's a rape or, you know, there's a hand job that needs to happen or something, you know, that you're right. like, uh, that's a little much, you know, you bring in someone that goes, okay, let's talk our way through this. Um, I did a, I was called up to a college to do a simple, um, it was a scene. It was a kiss. It was a simple kiss between two women. Um, but fairly simple. We talked through it. They were fine. They did it. They were like, they got it. And then one of the actresses said, <clears throat> So what if, um, you know, what do we do if we come to work and we, and we don't feel like we can do the kiss that day? And I looked at her and I said, why would that ever happen? We, we've talked this out. You know, the choreography it's set. If nothing has changed, I said, if you had a herpes outbreak, that would need to be a conversation for, for the safety of your co-star. 
Um, I said, um, or if you are assaulted the day before and something like a kiss is something that's going to throw you into the bad, bad kind of spiral, those might be some circumstances. I said, but you know that this is a job. (laughs) This is your job. You agreed to this job. You were taught how to do this job safely. And I'm not here to give you a reason to say, I don't feel like it today. That's not, that's a level of, you know, preciousness that is not part of what I try to teach. Right. right. It's like, no, we still have work to do. This is a, this is a job that we're hired to do or cast to do. And so we do our work or we don't take the job. (laughs) Well, I know this is very cliche, but the line is true. The show must go on. With you or someone else. Exactly. And I'm here to say we are replaceable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Good. 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 (laughs) So. Well, you brought up, uh, right. As far as being a a coach or teacher of how to do that. And when you did it, it, when I was younger, the one that stood out in my head the most was from Guiding Light. It was Beth and Bradley. I don't know if you ever watched Guiding Light, but it was a stepfather. And they did phenomenal. Um, it was, uh, was that James. Red, it was James Redhorn. Yeah, good actor. And he was the stepdad. And then I want to say it was. Uh, I can't think oh, of her was, name now. Oh, it was the character was Beth. The character was Beth, uh, but it was. Uh, What's what was that her name? Beautiful blonde, right? Judy. Judy Evans. Oh, okay. Judy Evans is the one who played that part, but later on, Beth Chamberlain. Yes, I was thinking of Beth. Beth was around him. Okay. Right. uh, Judy was the first one. She was one that had to go through all of that rape Mm -hmm. scene. And that was early 80s. And I think that's why it stood out because I was was young then. Yeah. But, you know, of course, my parents watched, my mom watched it, my aunts, my grandmother. We didn't have any choice. We had to watch it. (laughs) Uh, Is that the type of things you would do? Because I know they didn't back then, didn't have anything like that. Would you go in and help people learn how to do that in an appropriate way? Yes, for sure. I mean, I know it's not intimate, but it is part of an intimacy. It's an unwanted one. Oh, yeah. Any any time that you are in someone else's space, personal space, (laughs) right? Right. And, um, And having to touch them in a way that is um, at all sexual. Um, that's intimacy. So it could be a rape or an assault um, as easily as it could be. Stroking your hair like you just did. Yeah. Someone stroking your hair like that. But sometimes it's the intention, right? So you stroke my hair and it's like, I'm a hairstylist and I'm just fixing it. But if the intention is power or control or want or desire, then Things like eye contact and breath um, can help tell that story. And someone like me can come in there and be like, okay, by just breathing in when the finger grazes your ear, we can tell a completely different story than we would if you just sat there and you know, were looking off in this direction, you know, and yes. that's the kind of subtle stuff that an, a good, you know, any actor that has any kind of training or love for this is going to go, yes. That's awesome. Let me try that. You know, and once you give an actor control, no matter how traumatic it is they're trying to play, the actor feels like they're in control of that situation and they know what the story is that they're trying to tell, then they're going to do it better. And it's awesome, you know, and they're not going to get traumatized because of it. I agree 100% with that. I can only talk that Judy Evans was okay after that. Oh, she did phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, that she felt okay, that she had people around her and she felt, I've talked to Ellen Dolan about this a lot. You know, her character, do you remember Margot got raped on World Turn? And um, in fact, the year that I won the Soap Award, um, Ellen won one that year too. And I believe that that was her storyline. Yeah. And Ellen, um, Ellen did an amazing job when her character was raped and, um, she and I are actually, we're, we're pretty good friends right now. It's so funny. We've really gotten back in touch with each other lately because we have daughters the same age. Um, but she was an experienced enough actress at that time 
um, and a communicative enough actress with her crew and her director to, um, and you could ask Ellen about this if you've ever talked to her, but talked, talking, nice English. Talk. Um, <laughs> You're talking she, my language there. Talking to you. <laughs> um, I, I think she did really well with that storyline and she, she was very proud of her work there and she was not, I don't, I don't think that the takeaway for her was, was very traumatic. I think she just was proud of her work. Well, maybe we could have her on, maybe, because I've, had, seriously, I've had a lot of requests to put together an As the World Turns reunion, mm-hmm. and, and oh. I've got, like, Scott Bryce has said yes, uh, Justin Dees. Isn't he uh, the best, Scott Bryce? Oh, God, I love that. He is, oh, my gosh, that man, I had Such him nice on a few guy. weeks ago. He was so phenomenal, so kind, so kind. good actor, oh, my God. Yes. Yes. Uh, actually, when I interviewed him, he had just been on Blue Bloods, an episode of Blue Bloods uh, that I, I don't watch the show. I'm sorry, ABC, but no. I've tried but a couple times. I did watch his episode and he's he's intense. When, he's you know, just good. I mean, he's yes. fun. I, I didn't get Rosanna didn't get to work with him very much at the time. He played Craig and I know eventually they had storyline together, but Rosanna was a different actor and Craig was a different yes. actor. But um, but when I was on the show, Craig was played by by Scott. And I used to love I used to come down just to watch his scenes tape because I just thought he was so good. And whoever wrote for him was so great because they were able to make him a bad guy, but then was able to bring him back to being on the good side, which is yeah. very hard to do an arch like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to like the character. A likable bad guy. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We had Lauren B. Martin on last week, who ah. you were friends <laughs> with. Her character had played one of her character went through breast cancer mm-hmm. on the show. And I believe it was 2008. You shared your real life battle with mm-hmm. breast cancer publicly and on a blog. Mm-hmm. first let me say i'm over the moon that you survived i mean <laughs> god is great are you still cancer free at this time yeah my my oncologist fired me a couple of years ago which was great Yay. Yay. she was like oh yeah you don't need to come here anymore i was like oh my god because because cancer is like a full-time job and then there's mm-hmm. just years and years of follow-up afterwards where they're monitoring you and my my case every every Breast cancer is different for every woman. Every woman's body's different and every woman deals with their cancer differently and cancer, the cancer manifests in their bodies in different ways. So um, uh, I don't mean at all to draw parallels to anyone else who has maybe um, come to breast, but for me, it was, for me, it was a lot of surgeries because I had a very, very large tumor and um, but luckily it hadn't spread. So I was a really weird oddball case. Um, Takes you back to your dad. Yeah, I know. They were like, we can't figure out why this isn't killing you. This should have killed you months, if not years ago. You got good genes. Well, you remember those boobs. Rosanna had some boobs back then. There was a lot of room for that tumor to hide in. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. So what made you decide to, I'm glad you did, but what made you, decide I'm going to go public. I want people to know. For me, it was therapeutic. For me, um, I, when I was going through my treatments for about a year and a half, I wrote every Thursday. Um, and I had like an email blast. It was before blogs. I think it's, I think it's still somewhere online. I don't really know where it is. I don't think it's on my website anymore. I don't think but, you can find it. I found a couple of excerpts from it, but uh, I, yeah. I think the blogs, the blogs been taken down. Yeah. You know, I'm just one of those people where I was like, this is going to be a chapter. This is not going to be my story. It's not going to be the most exciting thing that happened in my life or the most interesting thing that happened in my life. But while I was going through it, it was very all encompassing. And um, I was learning and dealing with so much new, so many new experiences every day that I felt like I had to write about it. And so I wrote every Thursday. I also got tired of repeating myself. So I found that if I wrote everything down every Thursday and I just blasted it out to people that I knew and loved, they all felt like they were in the know with what was happening with me 
I didn't have to field a lot of phone calls. Um, I didn't have to hide from anybody either. Like I didn't want to hide it and be like, I don't want to talk about it. I didn't mind talking about it. I just didn't want to talk about it all the time. Right. So, so that's why I wrote about it. And, and I actually have um, several really important friendships in my life that I found specifically because I did the writing about the cancer when I was about my treatments and my surgeries when I was going through it. And um, um, including the artistic director at Capitol Repertory Theater, who's now one of my closest friends. Um, her name's Maggie, Maggie Mancinelli Cahill. And she she wasn't even on my email list. I didn't even really, I had done one show at Capitol Rep at the time. So she knew who I was for sure. She directed me, but we weren't friends. And um, someone kept forwarding her my blog every week. And she said, she said, you know, I feel like I got to know you on a level that was so different than our working relationship that, that I was like, I want to know her actually. And we have an amazing friendship and also a working relationship now. I've, I mean, I've, I do a show almost every season at Capitol Rep now. And that was a place that I lived in Albany for eight years before I could get on that main stage. It was very hard for me to not be thought of as just a daytime actress, you know? Right. Well, I know I, I love that you use your platform for that. You helped so many women without knowing you did because there's a stigma a lot of times with women who have breast cancer that it's shameful, that it's, you know, something you don't talk about. Mm-hmm. When in reality, the more you talk about it, the more women will check themselves. And well, and you need to destigmatize it, you need to demystify it. And, um, you know, that's how I felt about it anyway. I mean, my, my college roommate had cancer um, two years ago, breast cancer. And her reaction was, we're very close, but her reaction was very, very different. She didn't want to talk about it. She sort of hid herself from the world. I and mean, COVID was going on at the time too. Um, and that's okay too. I mean, everybody, everybody's allowed to deal with it in their own way. Right. It's like, you know, this is, I could just share my experience. And, you know, um, I found that I have, I mean, I've given several speeches with the American Cancer Society since then. And I've spoke, certainly had many a woman reach out to me that I didn't know just with some questions. Um, and I'm happy to talk to anyone about it. Now I, I work um, with Sloan Kettering. I do a benefit every year for a program they have called Visible Inc., which is a writing program. If you're going through cancer treatment at Sloan Kettering, which is a big hospital in Manhattan, if you've never heard of it, um, uh, one of their adjuvant therapies that they offer there is a writing workshop where if you're going through treatment, you can you can work with a published author to either write about it or write not even about your cancer, but just write using writing as a tool for therapy. Um, and then some of the writings get curated and then get performed by professional actors for a benefit for doctors and nurses and families every oh, year. Very um, cool. I'll be, yeah, I'll be shooting shooting something down in the city next week for, for this, this year's program. So it's fun. It's really wonderful. I feel like, and I didn't send you a copy of my script, but I feel like you've read it because you went right. Because I was going to let everybody know how great you are about helping raise money for various cancer centers. And I thank you for that personally. I've, I've known people who's been affected breast cancer, my stepmother and others. Um, You also, as we talked about, taught at several and teach at several colleges um has felt good to be able to give back to a new generation of upcomers i mean i like to teach i think i've always loved to teach and to coach um i think i i I learn a lot i learn as much from my students as uh i give to them that's how i feel about it and i'm still trying to be better at this thing, you know? So, um, you know, coming, coming to a smaller market, like in upstate New York, in order Mm -hmm. to raise my family, it was really important to me that I raised my family around my family. And, um, so to do that, I couldn't be in New York or LA anymore. And, um, teaching helped keep me, my feet wet in this 
and um, I think has given much back more to me than what I give to it. It's really, it's really great. And once in a while, when you get that special kid who comes in your class and you just watch them, I just love college age. I love them that age. They come in as freshmen and they're like, I call them guppies. They're like, <laughs> and then they graduate and they're like fully formed human beings. You know, they turn into to people in front of your eyes. It's amazing. Mr. Sophistication. <laughs> or just, they figure out, they figure out so much in those ages between 18 and 21 when you're, you just, you're expanding your brain, you know, and I get to be there and go, Hey, while you're expanding your brain, why don't we learn how to communicate better? <laughs> right. And they just really respond. So it's great. Well, you get a good segue. Uh, you've got two, children i'm not going to go with their names or anything that's privacy yeah. for you um have they shown any interest in acting no. <laughs> no. Um, no no my older daughter was in a play with me when she was 11 <laughs> she loved it and i think it was just because she liked hanging around with the grown-ups and going to work with mom she really had no desire she had one line she brought down the house she was so funny um every night and then she was like well i've done that why would i want to be in play in high school i've already worked with professionals <laughs> <laughs> so no my That's older funny. daughter my older daughter's actually in arizona she's training to be an airline pilot a commercial airline pilot awesome um, the only girl with 29 guys she's that kid she's amazing. Uh, i love that she's helping to crack that ceiling some more i mean, you know we yeah. got some female airline pilots but not many not many and she's well i mean my children are adopted they're both chinese um their heritage is chinese so uh she's a female and a, and an asian girl oh wow <laughs> going to be flying airplanes and she's an excellent driver so you can throw that stereotype and shove it you know where cuz she's so good oh my god i love her and then my second daughter is a junior at notre dame out in indiana doing whatever she wants oh. to do she's so smart wow notre dame that's a tough school to get in yeah she's well do you remember their reaction when they first saw you on TV? They could not care less. I'm really? not the first one that said that. The kids, kids just know you as mom and they just want you to be their mom. They don't, they don't, it doesn't register with them. They just think I'm sort of silly. <laughs> That's just mom. I'm just so a weird like, mom. <laughs> what do you like to do during your free time? So I did hear something. So I did hear things. something. I heard that you can make some mean pies. I'm a good baker. I don't like to cook. Do you do your own I dough for your bake. pies? What's that? Do you do your own dough for your pies? Oh, of course. It's not homemade if you don't make your own dough. Please. That's so cheating. Am I right? I can't do it. I just you can't, can't buy the filling either. You can't buy the filling. You I'll make to... that, but I cannot do a pie crust. They fall yes, apart you... or they're too sticky. Yeah, it's just... Crazy. Need me to send you my recipe, Tim. You can learn. Please do. I would love that. I would it's love not that. Not yeah. hard. <laughs> you have a favorite when you like to cook? Favorite flavor pie? Well, my I make a really good sweet potato pie, which is a southern mm. thing. Is it a thing in Kentucky? I don't know. Oh, yes. 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 Okay. It is not a thing up here. It's all pumpkin pie country up here. Oh no, we've so, got rhubarb and pumpkin and Strawberry rhubarb. Strawberry mm. rhubarb pies. I grow my own that rhubarb because that's my husband's favorite, strawberry rhubarb. I do amazing lattice top fruit pies. I like to make those. Um, I like to make my own pies too because I don't, um, my husband doesn't like sugar. He doesn't like a lot of sugar. And when you buy things in the store, it's got so much sugar in it. It's just too sweet. And when you're, especially with the fruit pies, when the fruit's really in season, you just don't need a lot of sugar. You want to really have the flavor of the fruit. So I have to make it myself for it to be really good. See, I do my own side, my own inside pie too, because I've got a Granny Smith apple tree out here. <laughs> you grow your own apple. I'll pick my own apples, but I won't grow them. <laughs> well, I originally had bought it from my mother years ago and she's since passed about eight years ago, but you know, it, it's just now starting to really it takes them forever to really take off yeah. yeah the dogs love it they like when they drop off they'll just get up there and start crunching them they eat the apples oh cool yes. now if you do feed your dog apples you want to try to keep the seeds just so everybody know try to keep the seeds they have arsenic in them not enough to kill us but it's enough yeah. to make them sick oh really yeah yes 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 and the dogs they'll eat the whole thing if you let them um i let one of them because they're small apples the seeds haven't really developed yet 
but it's a big apple. I'll slice it and I'll cut them seeds right on out. What kind of dogs do you have? I've got a Chihuahua, I guess a mini pin mix. He's like small, but he's got legs like a giraffe. He's oh, just, wow. <laughs> and then I've got a half uh, pit, half uh, lab. Oh, my gosh. I rescued him a few years ago from the Humane Society. And do they bring you joy? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I like I said, my mom passed about eight years ago and I had her dog until he died. And after that, I was like, mm, mm, no more. I don't want a dog. It took me a year. But when I got these two, oh, yeah, it was right up the whole house. Yeah. Right up the whole house. When I left L.A., I brought a rescue home with me upstate. I, I, I rescued a boxer in Encino <laughs> and I brought, her back. I brought her back. Her name was Ruby and gosh, she was just, she, she was amazing. Dogs can, she got me through while well, I was going through infertility at the time. We were trying so hard to have a baby and we couldn't. And um, if I didn't have that dog, I don't know how I would have gotten through it. And she passed away, right? I think we had Josie about six months. Sorry. That's my older daughter about six months before, um, Oh, I didn't want to say any names. If you want to, you can. Oh, okay. I'm just not doing. I'm just not doing that. I don't. I try not to go too personal with. With I appreciate it because you know I'm not going to ask about your relationship. I'm not going to ask about. I mean, I'll ask about your kids, but not yeah. specific about your kids. Well, the guy's still around. I married him when I was on the show. <laughs> He's still here. Still he here. <laughs> I don't I know why, but he's still around. <laughs> Yvonne, thank you so much for being here today. I so had so much fun here. Well, it's a pleasure talking with you. And um, Laura's doing great. You had a good time talking to Lauren Martin. Oh yes, Lauren is uh, phenomenal. Yeah, she's already. Yeah, she's the other one that agreed that she would come back as well. Yeah. So I hope you will too. Yeah, you let me know. With you, let me know. We'll get if something. I'm, if I'm available, I will. Yeah, of course. Right, right. And coordinating is not my strong suit, so I'm no. Be... I'm a little hard to pin down, as you can tell. It's it's because of this industry. I just do too many different things. I'm every day. I wake up and I go, "Where am I working today? What am I doing?" Well, yeah. I... Well, when I've got Scott and Lauren and others, yeah. maybe Martha or somebody, you'll you'll find a time. Okay. You just <laughs> I'm just kidding. In the loop. I absolutely will. If you want to hang out in the waiting room for a few moments, I'll be right back there. Okay. Great. Bye. Bye, Thank everyone. you. You have a great day. I'd like to thank Yvonne Perry for being here today, chatting with us. I'd like to thank the Necrotizing Fasciitis Foundation for sponsoring our show. If you would like to know more about Necrotizing Fasciitis, please visit www.necfasci.org. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel for more upcoming episodes. Please remember to be kind to one another. Until next time, everyone have a great day.